prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Now, the Lord had called Paul to Macedonia in a vision, as Paul himself says in this text, and the text exemplifies that for us. But also, in going to Macedonia, we must remember, as we're told in Acts 16, 12, that Macedonia was a chief city or Philippi was a chief city of Macedonia. And so Paul's letter to the church at Philippi would have had a connection from his the Macedonian call as it's often referred to in Acts concerning Paul during his missionary journeys as well. We refer to them as his missionary journeys. And so Paul was out going into these Gentile areas, colonies, cities, and, and, and provinces, and he is declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, again, Philippi was a chief city of Macedonia, so Paul's uh, vision to go to Macedonia, God calling him to Macedonia. And remember, if you go back to Acts chapter uh, 6, I believe it is, or 16, you will see that Paul had a desire to go uh, further into Asia Minor, and yet in this case, Paul, God is not letting him go where he desired to go to proclaim the gospel, but rather stops him and sends him to Macedonia, which I believe obviously would have included Philippi, obviously being it was a chief city within the uh, region or area of Macedonia. And so we see that there was a, a relationship that Paul had with the uh, Philippians that is unique by virtue of the fact, the manner in which God sent him unto them with the gospel. And as well, he had a close relationship and fellowship with the Ephesians. We know that as well, as clearly indicated within the uh, epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, as we've recently studied. Then we moved on to the theme of, of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Now notice, everything Paul is going to teach and instruct within this epistle of Philippians he begins by, of course, addressing the believers. He talks to them, greets them, thanks God upon every remembrance of them, and speaks of his prayers for them. And in his prayer for them, here's his desire. Notice he says again in chapter 1, verse 9, And this I pray. Here he says, I'm praying this for you, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent. So Paul is saying, my desire and prayer for you is that you approve things that are excellent. And so in this epistle, we see, the, and we'll see this further, and I gave you last week, if you recall in the overview, it's not necessarily an outline that we will follow, but I pulled uh, from Philippians to, to show and, re, and, and explain to you the, uh, all the things that Paul mentions concerning things which are excellent, and, and what excellent even means, and we're going to look at that again in just a moment also. But we see here, he, he says that you may approve things that are excellent, so Paul's desire within this epistle is that they grow and abound in love and in knowledge of Christ and, and of God the Father, but also that they approve things that are excellent, so that their lives are, are following after those things that are above and beyond the norm, if you will, things that are superior. And so the overall theme throughout Paul's epistle to the Philippians emphasizes the excellency of Jesus Christ and the excellency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 9 through 11, again, we've seen. And Paul's desire for the Philippians to approve things that are excellent, expressed in verse 10 of chapter 1 of Philippians, it sets the foundation for Paul's teaching within this epistle. The verb approve means to examine and to test. So test the things which are excellent. 
and to examine the things that are excellent. And the noun excellent in this passage means to be worth more than. And so the use of the word has the implication, as it's used in this text, that something is of considerable value, having certain distinctive characteristics. And could we not agree, obviously, that the gospel has certain distinctive characteristics, and that Jesus Christ has certain distinctive characteristics, and there's nothing else to compare to him. And here Paul is saying that we are to, to examine, we are to prove those things that are excellent, those things that are superior. And what is more superior than Christ? What is more superior than the gospel? What is more superior than knowing him and continuing to know and grow in him? We discover the emphasis most clearly stated in chapter 3 of this epistle. In Philippians 3, 7-14, through 14, we'll read through this entirety, the entirety of these verses. But what things were gained to me, Paul says, those I counted lost for Christ. Would he not here refer to, it, we're about to see this, but he's referring to now things he once thought to have value, things he once thought to be important, things he once thought to have worth. He now says these things are inferior. But he had to have something to compare that to, to understand this. And so he says, but those things which were gained to me, I, I considered these things gained, beneficial. I, I considered them profitable, he is saying. I counted loss for Christ. Now, for Christ doesn't simply mean, oh, because I had to to know Jesus. So, of course, that is true. But yet he is saying, in exchange for these things, I am seeking Christ. In exchange for knowing these things, I want to know Jesus. He says, all of this is inferior compared to the superiority of Jesus Christ. Yea, doubtless. He says, I count all things but loss. Here it is. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. He says, all this is refuse, it is garbage, it is trash, that I may know Christ. This is what is excellent. And be found in him, he says, verse 9, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now let me stop here for one moment before we read any further. I've often said to you, verse 10, it's a tremendous verse, and Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And many times people stop reading right there. It's like that's the emphasis of everything Paul is saying, when really that's not the entirety of his emphasis. And here Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And again, people will claim and say, I want to know Jesus, I want to know the resurrection power. But it, they often fail to understand or realize or embrace this truth that in order for one to know resurrection power, they first must die. And then Paul addresses that further when he says, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul's saying, oh, I want to have resurrection power. I want to know that. I want to know Christ. He says, but I understand. That means I am going to have to suffer as he has suffered to identify his sufferings. And I must be made conformable unto his death that his resurrected life might then be lived in and through mine. Through my life, that is. Verse 12. Not as though I had already attained... Either were already perfect, 
but I follow after that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He says, I've been apprehended of Christ and now my desire is to apprehend that purpose for which I've been apprehended, which is to know him. He goes on to say, verse 13, Brethren, I count on myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. All those inferior things is what Paul is talking about. The things he once thought gain and is now, he can, now he considers as lost and inferior. He says, reaching forth unto the things which are before, that which is superior, that which is excellent. I press toward the mark, and here is this excellency, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This is what is excellent. This is what is superior. Paul is saying everything else pales in comparison. Everything else is nothing but refuse in light of knowing Jesus. Now, when we say knowing Jesus, generally people would think, oh, salvation, meaning I just know that I've been saved and that I'm going to heaven. Paul is not talking about that alone here. He's talking about that being the foundation and then growing in that knowledge of God, growing in that knowledge of Christ, that I may know him is not Paul's prayer for salvation. This is Paul's desire after his salvation to follow after Christ, the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I say to you this morning, the message really is very simple, and we're going to look further into this, but here is, in a nutshell, the message. Christ is just more superior than everything else. He is superior to everything else. There is nothing to compare to him. And Paul is explaining that. Here you find the excellency of Jesus. Excellency meaning, again, not as someone might use the word today to say, oh, you did an excellent job. Though that could imply, of course, a a, a superior job to something else. No, this is something that has, this is something or someone that is obviously of, of considerable value, having certain distinctive characteristics. Now, some things are more excellent than other things, but Christ stands alone in this. His characteristics, his character, his person is distinctive among all others. So there's none to even compare to him. And the word excellency here in chapter 3 and verse 8 means superior in value or to be of surpassing or exceptional value. So what Paul is saying is, Oh, I I count all things but loss for the excellency, for the superior value, surpassing an exceptional value of knowing Christ, my Lord. Within this statement, Paul is explaining that to know Jesus, which is to identify in Christ's suffering and his death and his resurrection and life, surpasses all other knowledge and experiences. For this reason, Paul explains that he gladly forsakes all for this prize of knowing and growing in the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If there is anything excellent, if there is anything superior, if there is anything exceptional, surely knowing and growing in one's knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is at the pinnacle of all things excellent. And that's what Paul is explaining here. Within this first division of this first chapter of this epistle, consisting of verses 1 through 11, we've only read two verses this morning, specifically in our introduction. There are several matters to which we should give our attention. Paul's manner of greeting is much weightier than one may first recognize it to be. 
We must take caution that we do not view this greeting with the opening statements of this epistle in the same manner that we may view a casual hello in a salutation of a common letter written today. We must remember that this is an epistle which God inspired and there is nothing insignificant about it at all. So even in this greeting, there is a significance that is had and to be understood. So we must approach this epistle, including the opening address, with the most earnest desire to glean from the depths of the riches of God's Word as He has chosen to reveal Jesus Christ to us herein. We begin our examination of this epistle within verse 1. Verse 1 says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. First of all, notice with me, Paul identified as a servant. Now, I've dealt with this to some degree briefly in our overview and a moment ago reviewing that, but let's look a little more closely at this truth. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. So again, Paul does not address the Philippian church in his identity as an apostle, though he were still an apostle. And although he does not do this, it does not in any way negate his apostolic authority that he'd been given by God. Yet he addresses the church by emphasizing his identity as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the noun servant is of tremendous significance within this context. Paul not only identifies with the church as they also were servants of Jesus Christ, as I've pointed out, but more importantly, Paul identifies as one who is bound to Christ. So understand, it, Paul is identifying with his audience here, with the church to whom he is writing, the Philippians, and he's saying, I am a fellow servant as are you. And that's wonderful that he connects with them on this level, in this relationship, saying, I come to you as a fellow servant. I come to you as one who is involved in the ministry. I come to you as one who has planted this church that you are now, uh, that consists of you. He says, I come to you as a fellow servant, is what he is saying. But more importantly, he is saying, I come to you as one who is bound to Christ. It's not just I'm a servant, it's I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ or to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that being said, he's explaining, within using, use of the word servant as he does, it, it implies that one is under complete control of another or subservient to another. So Paul is saying, see, Paul could have come and said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints which are at Philippi. And had he done so, there would have been nothing wrong in doing so. Paul was an apostle. But immediately, that is saying that it's acknowledging or it is putting at the forefront here, Paul is saying, I'm an apostle called by God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm his apostle, but yet I am one sent by God for this purpose. But here he says, I'm a servant. I'm alongside you as a servant. But notice even in his address here, how he is stating, I am subservient, not I am an apostle. And Paul never said that in a boastful manner, obviously, in, his script, in the scriptures which he has written. But yet, he is not coming in even acknowledging that truth, though it is true. He is saying, I am subservient to Jesus Christ, as are you. I am a servant. I am bound to him under complete control of Christ. So Paul is explaining that although he is free in Jesus, at the same time he is bound to Jesus. And this means that Paul acknowledged that he was under the lordship of Christ. While there are those who embrace what is referred to as antinomianism, which is derived from two words meaning against law, or as though there were no law, Paul, in identifying as a servant of Jesus Christ, is denouncing such a claim or refuting such a claim of what is referred to as antinomianism. 
Paul is confessing that while he is free from sin and its bondage, he is absolutely enslaved to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And this is something we must understand. To be free from sin is to be servant to Christ. To be bound to sin is to be free from Christ. You're not in relationship to him at all. In Romans 7.25, Paul wrote and said, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Here, Paul's, the context, of course, of chapter 7 is Paul, again, is explaining the reality that he is continually contending with the presence of sin. He's not under its power, and he's not under its condemnation. Chapter 6, its power. Chapter 8, its condemnation. But yet, in chapter 7, he still must contend with the presence of sin. And this is the the very well-known chapter in which Paul says things such as this. That which I would not, that I do. That that I would not do, that I do or do not. And he's back and forth with this whole argument of this sinful, fleshly nature which resides within his physical body, but it has no right to claim any control. And so then Paul says, I thank God. Who shall deliver me, O wretched man that I am? Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, oh, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. He's talking about he now has the mind of Christ. He now has the spirit of God dwelling within him. And he's saying, I am subservient to the law of God. My desire is to, to live in the truth of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. However, with the flesh... I serve the law of sin. He's saying there's this constant conflict, and we've just experienced uh, our study of that through Ephesians chapter 6. So freedom in Christ, hear me closely please, freedom in Christ is not freedom from Christ, but it is freedom from sin and freedom to serve Christ in righteousness, which could never be done apart from faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Look, when people say, oh, I'm free in Jesus... Many times people are using that in the antinomian sense and they're trying to say, oh, I can do what I want because I have liberty. I can do whatever I want because I'm free. I'm not not under uh, judgment and under sin. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about to be free in Christ. As Jesus says, whosoever the Son shall make free shall be free indeed. Remember him stating that? And what does he mean by that? Free to sin? Of course not. Free to do as you please? Of course not. It is that now we have been given the ability and power by the presence of the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us to live and serve in righteousness, which is something we could never do before. If you do not know Christ, you cannot live righteously. You can't. It's not just you don't want to. You can't. You're not capable of this. But in Christ, we have been set free from the bondage and power of sin that we might live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is freedom. 1 Corinthians 9.21 Paul, of course, is explaining how that he ministered to those to whom God allowed him to minister, and he did not compromise here, and that's not what he is saying that some would claim, and neither is he just saying that, that he believes in pragmatism. In other words, let's just do whatever we have to do in order to get the gospel out in the sense of nothing matters except getting the gospel out. Well, yeah, that's not exactly true, meaning that we are to have lives submitted to the Lord as we are declaring the gospel. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, 21, Paul says this, to them that are without law, now he's talking about Gentiles here, this is the context, to them that are without law as without law, but then he says this, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. Why would Paul 
parenthesize that in this statement because he's saying to the Gentiles who are without law, I approach them as one who is not under the law, meaning Old Testament law as it had been given to the Jews because they were not seeing themselves under that. It doesn't mean he lived riotously among them. That's not what he is stating. But he's saying, I was not being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. So he's saying, it's not there was no law at all. The righteousness of Christ is that to which I am bound, Paul is saying. Because remember, the law is not a list of do's and don'ts. Please do not forget this. The law is not a list of do's and don'ts. The law is a declaration of God's righteousness. God is saying, I am righteous, I am God, and I declare this. And this is God declaring his righteousness. And then he says, I require this righteousness, and I will accept nothing other than this righteousness. Wow, when we understand the law like that, then we see the condemnation of the law because we are not righteous and we cannot do righteously. But yet God says, I'll require nothing except this righteousness. So the law then was our schoolmaster, Paul teaches us, to show us our need for Christ who is the righteousness of God because we are not righteous and we cannot do righteously. And then he says that I might gain them that were without law. So Paul is saying here, I went to, I did not go as a Pharisee or a former Pharisee to the Gentiles to evangelize them. I went as they are and approached them as they are, but yet I was always bound to write the righteousness of God in Christ. That does not mean I lived in any riotous manner. While men do their best to dismiss this truth, all men are enslaved, and Paul referenced this in his letter to those in Rome. Romans 6, 16-18. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But, thank, but God be thanked that ye are the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Listen to verse 18. Being made then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Here Paul just lays it out as bluntly as he possibly could. If you are free from sin, you are now a slave to righteousness. That's what he is saying. You are bound to righteousness. So again, whenever Paul says, Paul and Timotheus, servants of Jesus Christ, he's identifying with those whom he writes, saying, I am a servant as are you. But more importantly, he is saying, I am subservient to Jesus Christ, my Lord. I am in bondage to Jesus Christ, my Lord. Here's the point. If you are free from sin, it doesn't mean that you have no master anymore. The difference is you've been translated from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And you've been translated from a master of death to the master of life. It's not there's not a master you're always under a master. Why would you want to be under a master of destruction whenever there's the master of love and life and mercy and grace to whom we are now bound? And that's what Paul is identifying with here and identifying with Christ. There is no master who is more kind. There is no master who is more gracious. There is no master who is more merciful. There is no master who is more loving than our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful to be able to say to you this morning that I am a servant of a more excellent master. He is excellent. 
He is distinct, has distinctive characteristics which can be compared to none. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Paul says that we are not our own, but we are bought with a price. To know Jesus is to love Jesus, and to love Jesus is desire to serve Jesus with all of one's entire being. For we are not our own, but we are bought with a price. We belong to God, therefore we are under His complete control. We are to acknowledge Jesus as Lord every moment of our lives. Second, Paul identified the church as saints. Notice verse 1 goes on to say, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of uh, of Jesus Christ to the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, Paul's identity of the church at Philippi as saints is no less significant in the, than the identity of, uh, of himself as a servant. The noun saints here means holy ones, and it implies persons who belong to God. And this, again, aligns with the fact that we are servants to Christ. We are bound to him. As I mentioned last week, Paul first referenced the saints, the general church body, before mentioning the leaders within the church, who were also included in Paul's address to the saints. Meaning, when Paul said to all, with, to all the saints, he's including bishops and deacons, but then he separates them in the latter part of the greeting. And the significance of this order in which Paul addresses this church is in the fact that the church does not exist for its leadership, but that the leadership has been provided by God for the well-being of the church. In other words, the significance of the identity of the church leadership was not in their specific position, but rather in their relationship with and to God. The leader's identity was not in what they did, but who they were made to be by God in Christ. So Paul is saying to all the saints, including the bishops and the deacons, and then he says, and the bishops and deacons, not separating them as though they're not the saints, but he's saying there are bishops and deacons among you, there is church leadership that's been set up among you, but again, you're not there for them. They are there for you, for the benefit of the church and well-being of the church. And that has been really flip-flopped today in, in the church by large. It's as though uh, uh, men think that the church exists for them rather than they are there to serve and they are there to oversee and they are there to teach and instruct the, the church. And the church often looks at its leadership in, a, in the same manner in which they exalt men as though men are excellent when they're not. Christ is superior, not a pastor. And so this is a, a, an error within, in the church today that has been detrimental within the church, I believe. But notice the leader's identity was not, again, in what they did. It's not the fact, oh, you're bishops and deacons and you're exalted. No, it's that you are with all saints and yet you've been given oversight, leadership, and service within the church specifically by God called to do so. Much too often it seems as though individuals are more focused on a position in ministry they may hold rather than the position they've been provided by God in Christ. Really, this was a large part of the, Paul's rebuke in 1 Corinthians. If you recall with me, he's, showing, he's talking about the different gifts, the spiritual gifts and things that they've been given, sign gifts, so on and so forth. And when he speaks of the gifts, then he says, I show unto you a more excellent way. Then he goes into chapter 13, and he talks about charity, remember? And of course, charity here is really Christ. It's the love of God in Christ. That's the only kind of love that looks that like that. And he's saying... The more excellent way is Jesus. That's what he's saying. So here you are bickering. Here you are exalting yourself. Here you are thinking you to be more. You are more excellent. More. You are superior to another because you have been given a specific gift, which was God's choosing to do, not yours anyway. Whereas you are absolutely neglecting the truth of the significance of what it is that you have been called out as saints in Christ Jesus. This is more excellent. This is greater. 
We are not ministers who are saints. We are saints who've been called to serve in ministry. Do not confuse the two. (laughs) We are called apart by God to himself in holiness, and there's no higher calling than this. The title bishop means overseer, and the title deacon means minister or servant. And Paul's address to the church as saints included both bishops and deacons. In other words, again, the bishops and deacons were part of the church body as saints, but their office was not their identity. Their identity was as those who were called out by God in Christ. Then third, Paul addressed the church as those who'd been blessed in Christ. Grace and be unto you and peace from God the, our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the unmerited goodness, the unmerited kindness and favor of God. When one receives this grace of God in Christ, it produces peace with God the Father. In other words, to know the grace of God is to know the peace of God. If you know God's grace in Jesus Christ, then you're at peace with God in Jesus Christ. If you know His grace, you know His peace. To know His peace is to know His grace. For it is by God's unmerited kindness towards us in Christ that He has initiated the work of reconciliation through Jesus by which we are redeemed by, and by which the Fa- God the Father has made peace with us through His Son. Colossians 1, 19-21. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell, speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ, Jesus in the flesh, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Now notice this. It pleased the Father that in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, all fullness should dwell. And then he says, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. It's saying God the Father made peace through the blood of the cross of His Son that by Jesus, God might reconcile all things unto Himself. You don't make peace with God. God makes peace with you through His Son. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He was like, oh, have you made peace with your maker? You remember the old Westerns? You remember how you... No, you don't make peace with God. God makes peace with you. He initiates it. He sustains it. He accomplishes it. Perfects that. God is the one who initiated. God is the one who's performed in Christ all that was necessary for him to reconcile us to himself. This is grace. Do you not see that? This is grace. We don't deserve this. This is the unmerited goodness and kindness of God. And it is this grace which provides us peace with God as he, God the Father, has accomplished redemption through his Son on our behalf. This grace which provides us peace with God is excellent. This is an, this is an excellent epistle who talks about an excellent Savior who has given us an excellent redemption and has provided us the opportunity to know His excellency. This is excellent. It is of exceptional value and superior to anything and everything known to man. This is excellent, because He is excellent. He is God alone. There is none other beside Him, none other as He is.